Okie dokie, oh. a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Samuel! Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are still in the Gospels. This is Gospels 48. Last week, we continued Jesus' teachings using the parable format. Yeah. He started to introduce more nuances about his teachings about the kingdom, like such as the parable about the treasure in the field and the merchant in search of pearls, yeah. this aspect of leaving behind all of your previous ties and holds to the world, your materials, your hopes and dreams in order to pursue this God and this Messiah and this message of rep- repentance and redemption in the world that's going to ultimately lead to the kingdom on earth. Um, and then we left off with Jesus kind of getting a little bit heavy, throwing in some es- eschatology stuff about good fish and bad fish. And Paul, you and I talked a bit about what does that look like for humanity when the kingdom is coming and what is the actual benefit of being a part of the kingdom? Yeah. Um, and Jesus is going to have some poetic comedy timing with this next verse that he's going to, that we're going to start <laughs> off with today. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. We can't get away from the fact that being a Christian is a high, high calling. It's just a fact. We got to get used to it. But yeah, we had to leave off at this really weird spot. We're starting in Matthew chapter 13, verses 51 and 52, (laughs) and it says this. Have you understood all these things? And they said to him, yes. (laughs) And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. So, okay, have you understood? And they answer yes. Obviously, we would all be forgiven for snickering a little bit because really, do we all understand these things? I don't know. But, I mean, you know, it'd be the same if he asked any of us. And now this, okay, some people call it a parable. Other people's don't. I don't know. I don't really care so much one way or the other. But if it is a parable, well, then it's also about the kingdom. Surprise! Sorry, I had to throw that in there. Uh, Every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven. What is this even talking about? So so let's just talk about scribes for a second. Um, Their primary purpose, we could say, is in writing, scribing, as it were, but on a practical level, the scribes were very often uh, teachers. That's what they did. And so since here, uh, we know that he's speaking to his disciples, at least, and, and we know that he would expect his disciples to, at some point, become teachers of other disciples. Well, then I guess, you know, when it's saying that every scribe who's been trained is like a master of a house— Well, okay, we're probably talking a little more of the teacher side, right? That that seems appropriate here anyway. So I thought that was important to bring up. And then it does this weird thing. It says he brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And so that's kind of a weird image for us. I, I don't know that that fits really good with anything that we have today. So maybe let's say this much. That practically speaking, this treasure that we're talking about, well, I guess you could say it's relative in that, you know, if, you, if you're, let's just call you an ordinary guy of this time, of this place, well, your treasure might actually be things like, I don't know, old reliable farm implements versus new efficient farm implements or something, right? Something super, super practical. But then if you weren't an ordinary guy, maybe you were some sort of rich guy, uh, well, then maybe it really is what we would relate to as material things, things that really are more like treasure, like gold or or gems, or 
or maybe you know what we think of as fine things or classic things. Uh, they're older, but they have a classic form or, or beauty and, and, and new things that captivate one's attention, things like that. So I don't know this this idea of treasure and having new and old in it it could it could really uh be very different based on the listener you know who they know who they're involved with what their life uh situation is all of that uh but let's let's go ahead and treat it as we did all the other parables cuz we're we're kind of getting out of those but we'll just do one for the road so the master of the house you could think of them as a teacher And I think we would have to say not just a teacher, but it's a teacher who is now also a disciple of Messiah, of of the kingdom, of his kingdom message. And so then what are we talking about when we say, when we're talking about things that are old? He takes out of his treasure what is old. Well, that would have to be existing teaching on the Torah, on the scriptures, things that that you already knew and understood. But then you also bring out what is new. Well, what is this new thing? Well, that's going to be Jesus's teaching about the kingdom and some of the kingdom implications and that kind of stuff. And we already know one really, really big message was this idea that the kingdom wasn't coming in just one big grand boom, here it is. It was something that was going to start small and grow over time. Uh, so, so that's the new. And so the takeaway from this, you've got a master of a house, he's bringing out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Well, it's a teacher who's also a disciple of Messiah, the kingdom, and he now has, I don't know if we should say two treasures or double the treasure, right? You get the idea. He has more to offer his students. So he's asking, did you understand these things? And they say, yeah. And he's like, well, okay, well, if you do, you've now got two treasures or double the treasure. You have what is old and you have what is new to bring out to those who visit your house, so to speak. Yeah. And I'm getting some new versus old wine vibes from Luke 5, like in Luke 5, yeah. 39, um, Jesus says, and no one having drunk old wine um, desires the new for he says the old is better so like it affirms the value in the old but it also prioritizes the new as well exactly yeah that's so great i'm so glad you remembered that that is a perfect connection so anyway this kind of finishes up our walk through at least one big section of parables and uh, again sorry we couldn't fit it in last week but whatever uh, there you go. That and, and now we have to segue into something completely different. But it'll be fun. So let's go there. Got anything before we move on, Samuel? No, I'm just interested to see what about this is different. Okay, well, here we go. Uh, let's see. These sections are Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 to 27. Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. And Luke chapter 8, verses 22 to 25. Uh, This time, I've chosen to read from Mark. Seems to have a little more info, so here we go. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose. And the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? 
pretty good storytelling, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. These guys are all right. So, oh my gosh, there's so much in here. So let's start with some of the weird stuff at the beginning. It says that uh, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. What the heck is that? (laughs) That's the weirdest little... Yeah, all I can think of is just as I am. (laughs) We got to throw on that auto tune again. Dang it. (laughs) So, yeah. So... Uh, there's a few ideas floating around out there. Some think that this means that they simply took uh, no time to prepare for the journey across to the other side. They just, you know, they just took off. Well, I I don't know. That's possible, right? Others think that this suggests that Jesus had wearied himself like he he's he's always moving from one thing to the next and and it kind of reminded me as I was reading about that one you remember how we talked kind of early on in Mark's gospel uh, we made fun of him always using that word immediately and immediately 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 what well, Mark's gospel in general it does it kind of presents the story at a at a faster pace you know it's it's kind of like uh uh, what's that video editing that people do on YouTube where they don't really try to do anything smooth? It's just, you know, they just clip it and it, it might look weird, but everybody got used to it. Mm-hmm. Mark's gospel is kind of like that. He just goes from one thing to the next thing to the next thing. And so maybe maybe this is, it's, it's possible. Maybe we're trying to get across the idea that Jesus, you know, he's wearied himself and he's just going from one thing to the next. Well, that could be. Another one is, uh, it could be suggesting uh, just just the simple fact that they took no break. He went straight from teaching into traveling on the boat to the other side. And so it's just the emphasis of the, of the no time break, whatever. You know what? I'm sure there are other possibilities. These are some. You can choose whatever you want. I don't know what it is. That's just a weird little phrase to throw in there. They took him in the boat with just as he was. So anyway, think about that one for a while. Now, Mark is also the one to mention that they left the crowds, so that was kind of important, but then he also says that other boats were with him. So what is it? Is this like Jesus plus a whole bunch of disciples? Or, you know, were there some from the crowd that, you know, they just really couldn't shake them, right? So 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 they ended up coming with them anyway? And by the way, if they've got Jesus in this boat, and there are other boats, I know we haven't quite gotten there yet, but what happened to them in the storm? I mean, this part that we read about here doesn't say anything about it. I, in a way, it's like Mark, he's kind of the king. He's quite the question raiser. Mm-hmm. He gives you a lot of information. And at the same time, it's like there's so much that he's not telling you. And then uh, here's another thought. Sam, remember how when we were going through the parables and I kept having this problem with, okay, so right here, it sounds like they go off in private. But then by the time you get here, it seems like he's back with the crowds. You don't really, well, over here, it says that they go in the house, but then he starts telling parables again. Are they still in the house? Are they got, well, here's another one. If he's teaching and they immediately go get into the boat, go to the other side. Well, when did they have time to go off in private? I mean, so the storytelling as we go along gets really disjointed. And, and you know what? You just need to be a little bit flexible with that. Plus, we're probably not helping in this particular case because we're trying to go in chronological order. So, you know, we're, we're giving the, the sense that these should all sort of make sense and go in order, and they don't always. And so that makes it a little hard. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so there's Mark, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. But let's get back to the story. So this squall comes up. Isn't that a great word? I love that word. Yeah. A squall comes up and it's sudden and it's violent. And you know what? Don't underestimate this. This was a real danger. Under normal circumstances, uh, you know what? They easily could have lost their lives. And the boat, I mean, it's filling with water. That's never a good thing when you're in a boat. 
Practically speaking, this whole situation, this just did not look good. But here's Jesus. He's just snoozing, unaffected by it all. Now, apparently, he's in the back of the boat, you know, the stern. He's in the back. He's probably sheltered. And and I say that because what we, little bit we know about the boats, but also, I mean, okay, I get it. Some people can sleep through a lot, but who sleeps through rain and waves actually splashing into the boat, right? So you got to figure he's protected a little bit. And so, you know, we're kind of assuming he's, he's, he's staying dry where they're not. And, I, but still, he's got to be seriously sawing logs if they had to wake him up during a storm, right? <laughs> now think about it though. That may actually lend a little credence to the idea that when we say they took him just as he was, they were kind of referring to the fact that he was exhausted. I think it's the first time I've ever pictured Jesus sawing logs. Yeah. That's, that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But he, you know, I, I think, I think it's very reasonable to say, yeah, I don't know. He really might have been truly exhausted because he was sleeping through a lot. But anyway, in Mark's version, he says, do you not care? Now, the, the other Gospels, they weren't quite that way. They, they were just ordinary cries for help, right? But Mark's takes on a little bit of more of that, I don't know, self-centered, narcissistic, but enough about you, let's talk about me, kind of a feel to it, right? And I always wonder this. Where did Mark get all of his material for his Gospel, Samuel? Oh, I don't know that off the top of my head. You do. You just forgot. It's Peter. He was running around with Peter. And so he's the one that wrote for Peter, copying down all of this stuff. So Peter's the primary source. And it makes you wonder, is this really the words that they use? And is it Peter? Was he the one who said it? Do you not care that we are perishing? And, and you know, Peter... Like in his own brain, he just can never really live this down. And so it ends up making its way to Mark and Mark ends up putting it in his gospel, right? (laughs) Well, it actually makes sense because I know that Marty Solomon suggests that each gospel writer has a different theme or different message and that he says he suggests that Mark writes to a Roman audience and Romans were immersed in this culture of Hellenism, which basically centers on the whole universe is centered on me as the individual. And so like that it could have connected to Roman influence listeners to have someone in this story respond that way, because that would probably be how they would have responded based on how they were exposed to their culture. Yeah. Yeah. And we need to remember that, you know, uh, all through, uh, especially like the Mediterranean, just all, all those different areas, the Roman culture had infused itself in so many ways and in so many places. So the, the very thing that you're talking about, the idea that, that you know, Mark was speaking to people that had taken on some of that, that Roman stuff. Uh, yeah, I, 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 that's good. Good, good point. Now, check this out. What does Jesus say? Peace, be still. So first, Jesus rebukes the wind, and I get such a kick out of that, just imagining rebuking the wind, because if we're talking about rebuking, and usually we're talking about people, we would say, well, you know, I rebuked you. I gave you a severe reproof for being at fault, and this is a formal reprimand or an official, you know, right, takedown. That's what a rebuke is. Jesus is doing that to the wind. That's just a crazy picture. Those words are are amazing. Now, Matthew and Luke, they actually have him rebuking both the wind and the waves. In Mark, all he does is tell the sea to be quiet, right? This is, it's just a crazy picture, but this peace be still, this is the same lingo, the same word that underlies when he was commanding a demon to come out of a man back in the synagogue. Remember that earlier in the, in the earlier podcast, Samuel? Mm-hmm. You could go back to Mark chapter 1, verse 25, Luke chapter 4, verse 35. He says, peace be still. 
And it makes you wonder exactly who or what does Jesus see? Is he seeing the world exactly the way that we did? Is he seeing something more, something different? I mean, who or what was he talking to? Was the wind really listening to him? Was the wave really listening to him? Is it really just wind and waves, or is there something behind it? And for that matter, you know, you could sort of extrapolate that out and say, yeah, you know, like in everyday life, is that really just, uh, I don't know, like a a, a fever or, or something? Or is there something behind that? And now all of a sudden in my head, I've got Morpheus. Do you think that's air you're breathing right now? <laughs> right? Nice. And And I guess the reason I'm bringing this up is because I know what stories are coming next. We have to recognize there is both a spiritual reality and a physical reality. Mm-hmm. What we think of as creation and what there is outside of creation. And again, what is Jesus seeing? Who is he talking to? It's, it's a crazy picture. And it fits really well with the Jewish thinking of the sea and waters being viewed as chaotic because they're going back to the creation story and before God started ordering the the physical matter that would eventually turn into the earth as we know it it says that the the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep and the the Hebrew behind that is like tohu vavohu which is like chaotic nothingness so yeah in in Jewish culture like they there was apprehension with their relationship to waters because of that chaotic nature to it. And even if you think about the connection with the demonic, like that's an aspect of the created world that is not under God's order. Like that's chaos. So I absolutely agree that there's something deeper behind that. There's a, a spiritual component behind chaotic things that Jesus is maybe referencing here. Yeah. Yeah, and in some sense, seems to be kind of tapped into in a way that maybe we can't actually relate to. It's kind of a cool picture. (laughs) But, (laughs) oh, I love this next part. So he says to him, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Okay, for me, Samuel, this raises a very important question. Why wouldn't they be afraid? I would be, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah. That's... That is, it's crazy to me. What kind of faith did he actually expect them to have? I mean, were were they supposed to, you know, in in their mind, they were like, okay, I have faith that God can keep his Messiah safe. And so I'm hanging out with him. Therefore, I'm going to be safe too. I mean, really? Is is that a safe thought? Is that safe logic? I don't know. And and they obviously didn't think so because they were afraid. How about this one? Were they supposed to have faith that Jesus himself had authority even over the creation? I mean, they knew Messiah was awesome and everything, but did did they really think that he was going to step in to the role that they have only ever known that God does that stuff? I don't know. Was that Jesus' expectation? Was was Were they supposed to have faith that, hey, Jesus is just doing what he sees his father doing, and therefore, there's no stopping it, so it doesn't matter what kind of storm you bring up, we're going to be just fine. I, I don't know, man. It still seems to me like this is just a really, really high bar, that if you were these guys where you were in the middle of this kind of a storm, that you were somehow supposed to be okay with it. And I think in this, even though we can recognize like the the humanity in the story and how, man, I don't know, I, I kind of understand what they were feeling. This actually stands, I think, for us as just a great metaphor for life. 
if, if we can somehow go back to this story and say, look, look at what they were in the midst of and look what Jesus hoped or expected from them in terms of faith. And, and, and I don't know, in a way, we could look at it as impossible or we could look at it as, man, I, I can stand firm in my faith through a lot. So I don't know. It, it's just, it's an amazing picture to me. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a tough thing to wrestle because I was just thinking like, uh, I know that my, my aunt used to say this verse to me all the time whenever I was younger and the, the King James version actually, like I, I like the phrasing in that, but in Psalm 56, three, the writer says, what time I am afraid I will trust in thee or like the modern English is like when I am afraid I will trust in you so it's almost like in that account there's an expectation that you're going to be afraid but then there's like a call and response to how do you treat your fear where do you run to who do you confide in so maybe there was something with the disciples where they didn't know how to respond with their fear. They were responding incorrectly to their fear. Yeah, that's a good one, Samuel. That's good. Yeah, I'm just saying I feel a real empathy for these guys in this situation. And and look at what they do. When this all is finished, Jesus has calmed everything. Look at this. Who then is this? They've seen Jesus do a lot of stuff. They've heard him say a lot of things up to this point already, this, this was beyond any expectation they had. And I, I, I said it before, only God could command or control the seas, the chaotic waters. The, and, and you said it, that those waters, they're the very essence of chaos in the Jewish worldview, and not just the Jewish, it, th- this time period. Yeah. But they did a lot of sailing, but oh boy. They did not like the water. Badness, chaos lived there, right? But they believed he was the one. They believed he was the Messiah. And this was still, it was just marvelous. It was just awe-inspiring. And it was fear-inducing power. So, I don't know. I I love it. I, I feel like, man, this this is the greatest movie I've ever seen in my life. And it's all going on inside my head. I love this. <laughs> but you know what? We got to point this out because so many people talk about it. There are a lot of cool parallels between this little story and the story of Jonah. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about it, but I'm just going to list off a bunch of things. You can think about it on your own. Uh, okay, so this all happens in a boat. It's kind of a, kind of a good match. Uh, there was a big storm. There's a good match. You had people who were afraid. They were going to die in the storm, right? That kind of thing. And then you had someone in the story who was sleeping. And somehow, they each did it a little different way, but somehow that person played a very important role in bringing about the cessation of this dangerous storm. In both stories, no one was lost. And Whatever it was that that led to the cessation of the storm, well, that caused great fear. And then, you know, you sort of see this, uh, I don't know, in both stories, there's, uh, call it an agent of repentance or salvation. So a lot of cool parallels between the two stories. And is there a potential connection with the the nations being involved with this and Jonah, he was on the boat to go preach, you know, his prophetic message to Nineveh, which was outside of the nation of Israel. And what you're about to like read next, the place where Jesus and his disciples are going is outside of the main hub of what's going on with God's people in Jerusalem. Yeah. Primarily Gentile. Yes. Good connection. Yeah. So, I, you know, that's one. I mean, you could literally stop the podcast, spend a few days just looking at all of those because it's so cool and fun, and then come back and finish the rest. 
or you could just keep listening. Yeah. Because we're going to, we're just going to go ahead and keep talking. <laughs> All right, here we go. Uh, Matthew chapter 8, verse 28. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. And Luke chapter 8, verses 26 and 27. Uh, I'm going to do the Mark version because it seems to have more detail. So we'll go there. Oh, Samuel. Here we go. Here we go. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Ooh. I'm getting All some right. Smeagol Gollum vibes right now. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That's right. That guy sounds freaky. So let's see. That, okay. Uh, let's go. First, the storm is stilled and they make it to the other side. Now, I don't know if you remember, they left when it had become evening. So I, we don't know how long it took to get across. Is it still night? Or is it day? That would make it even more creepy. If exactly. At night. Right. I know. Isn't that crazy? But we don't know. We don't know. And then, uh, okay, so like Mark's version says, what did I, what did I even say? The Gerasenes? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Many translations. It's like you've got the, the Gadarenes. They would have come from a city called Gadara. The Gerasenes, they would have come from a place called Gerasa or Gerasa. Uh, um and then you have the Gergesenes is another one. They come from Gergesa or you know, something like that. I don't know if I'm pronouncing any of that right. The point is, uh, we don't know the exact specific location. Um, and, and I don't think, I, I haven't found anywhere in here that it's really critical to the story, right? So the exact location might be a bit elusive. Here's what we do know. They were in the Decapolis. We've talked about that before. It's across the sea uh, from Capernaum, and I guess if you if you're thinking about it in terms of a map, you would be going east and then probably a little bit to the south. Now, again, you mentioned it already. This is the really important point: the place where they're going. It's primarily Gentile. Doesn't mean there wasn't a Jew in sight, but it would have been pretty pretty rare. The overwhelmingly vast majority of Jesus's ministry up to this point, and as we continue through to the end, it's going to be to Israel or within Israel. Now, this doesn't have anything to do with Gentiles, whether they were to be or not to be a part of the story. Of course they were. But when Jesus was here, what was important is salvation has to come through Israel. That's the promise. That's the story. And so Jesus himself, well, he is an Israelite. And in addition to that, the Jewish people, obviously, they're Israel, but the remnant into which the Gentiles needed to be grafted by faith, we'll talk about that, I'm sure, someday in the future, that that remnant had to be Israel. So, why you see Jesus ministering mostly through Israel is because this is the foundation. This is the beginning. That's where it all has to start. And then we're going to see these odd little stories here and there where Jesus actually interacts with the Gentiles. And then, of course, later, the Gentile interaction pretty much takes over the story. But now here's the thing, Samuel. This is just rough. If we were to read the Matthew version, which is super short, it says, When they came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass that way. Okay. So was it one man or two? You just got to admit, that's kind of problematic, right? 
You would think. If, if there was a difference, like we're going to read about this later, Jesus sends out, well, somebody says 70, somebody else says 72. Does that really bother you? Not really. No, it doesn't seem like a big deal. When two people are telling a story and somebody says one and somebody else says two, okay, that's kind of a big deal. Doesn't that seem like it's hard to get that wrong? Uh, yeah, that's 100% more. <laughs> that's right. It's, it just seems like a big deal. And you know what? People who are opposed to God, Christianity, the Bible, whatever, they, oh, they love this one because they think this is just bad, 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 bad. And, I mean, you just got to stand back and go, look, I get it. This seems bad. Now, we could look for some possible explanations. One of them would be, well, okay, we don't actually know that all three of these stories are actually all describing the same event. Okay, I'll acknowledge that that's a possibility. And other than the fact it's one guy versus two guys, it it sure seems like they are talking about the same event. I doubt that he went and, you know, went across the sea to Gentile Decapolis and freed some guy. Right? That doesn't happen more than once, right? <laughs> kind of weird. So I, I don't know about that one. Maybe, maybe not. Another one is that, well, you know what? Mark and Luke, they're focusing on the one man because he was the one that was dominant or prominent. He, like, like he was the one doing all the talking, if you will. They don't ever explicitly say that there wasn't another man. They're just focusing on the one. Okay, well, again, I can't really claim that that's impossible. It does seem a little bit evasive, you could say, but okay, it's possible. And then a third one might be, well... We've talked about this before. Eyewitness testimony is a funny thing. On one hand, you need it to be consistent enough that you can find out what the truth is. But eyewitness testimony is notoriously bad at details. They often differ in details and sometimes even really big, important details like, dude, was it one or two? Can you really not get that right? But it really happens. I'm sure we could find some real-life court transcripts where you'd see stuff like this all the time. The point is that testimonies collectively provide a consistent thread through which we can, you know, you can get a clear and right picture of basically what happened. And, and, and I, this is just going to be true. Among humans across all time, it's it's just, it's it, okay, so this is another reasonable possibility. Are any of these things right? Do they actually explain it? I don't know. But they're all possibilities. And so we're just going to go with it because what am I going to do? Change it? <laughs> That's what's in the Bible. I can't fix mm-hmm. it. It's just there. But anyway, th- here's what we know about the man or the men. Uh, they were demon-possessed. Or it's, you could say they, were, they had unclean spirits. Or you could just simply say they had demons, whatever that means. And so this is sort of the given explanation for uh, what was wrong with this guy or, or, or the guys, whatever. Uh, and then we get this description of what he looked like, so, sort of. He was fierce. He wore no clothes, which... Okay, by the way, the the words that are used here, he doesn't have to be completely naked, okay, but whatever. He wore no clothes. Uh, He lived among the tombs. He had often been under guard. We'll read that actually in what follows. He was bound and shackled, but he always broke free. He was occasionally driven to the desert. That's another thing that appears uh, in the scriptures that follow. He could no longer be bound. He had unmatched strength. He was always crying out, and he was always cutting himself with stones. So this dude, he was probably really well known, and he was a hot mess. 
that is just, I don't even know how else to describe it. This dude, he was struggling. He had troubles. Yeah. And again, it could be dudes, whatever. Uh, you know what? I'm just going to speak in the singular from here on out, just for simplicity's sake, because I don't want to keep going dude or dudes, guy or man, yeah. you know, whatever. Yeah. It Well, it just real quick before you move on it, this point about the demonic man shows the legitimacy of like the power that demonic spiritual forces have within the created world and that yeah. like, it, that shouldn't be taken lightly like it shouldn't be overhyped and like you explain every single thing because of that but it right. just it just shows that an enemy also contains power that is in opposition to you know, the protagonist in the story too. And that yeah. should be acknowledged. Yeah. Don't act like they're not real. Those don't discount them as if it's, it's nothing. Uh, that was just, you know, superstition at the time or whatever. No, don't do that. Uh, but yeah, like you said, don't blame everything on them. It's good. It's good. So, uh, well, let's see what's, what happens with this guy. So, uh, we move on to Mar- uh, Matthew chapter eight, verse 29. Mark chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, and Luke chapter 8, 28 and 29. Uh, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and read Mark again. And a little piece, there, there's something I liked in Matthew, so I'll, I'll add that in there too. So Mark 5, 6 says this. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Wow. Okay. So uh, let, let's do the little bit from Matthew also. He says it this way. Have you come here to torment us before the time? Whoa, that's important information too, right? What's going on here? Mm-hmm. Now, Luke, uh, he he adds some other things. We're not going to read that because uh, they kind of match what Mark had already said above. Um, but anyway, uh, so so here is, well, let's just say it's a guy. He sees Jesus and he runs and falls down before him. What does that tell you, Samuel? Uh, he's subject to yeah Jesus and his authority bowing to the authority yeah and then notice it says he ran and fell down for him and crying crying out with a loud voice he said all right so he saw Jesus he ran and fell down he said who is the he that we're talking about here you might be thinking that it's obvious well it was this man But in the context, the whole little interaction that happens here, everything seems to be happening between Jesus and this demon. Remember, Jesus is the one that starts it all by commanding the unclean spirit to come out of the man. And so it's the demon that's responding. Kind of interesting, right? Now, Jesus, okay, uh, notice that. Jesus didn't introduce himself. Hey, my name's Jesus. Get out of the man. The demon names Jesus. He uses his actual earthly name, Yeshua, right? It's his human name, his earthly name, title, whatever. And this demon knows exactly who he is. That's kind of interesting to see. He also calls him, as if that wasn't enough, Son of the Most High God. So now he's not just using his, you know, like earthly or human name. He's using his, uh, call it his heavenly name or title. And again, we see that the demon knows exactly who he is. Kind of interesting. And then he asks the question, what have you to do with me or with us? And we've talked about this before. It's like saying, we have no business 
with each other or what business do we have with each other? And another thing you might say is, what are you doing here? The idea that it, it puts across is that there's something, there's something incorrect about you being here with me right now. So you, you remember back Jesus and his mom, uh, they ran out of wine. And, and what was the question? You know, she's like, hey, they've ran out of wine. Do something. And Jesus said, <laughs> what does this have to do with me? What does this have to do with me? And then you remember the demon possessed man in the synagogue? This is, it's kind of that same story. Go back to Mark 1, 24, Luke 4, 34. What did the demon say? Or what did the man say? Whichever it was. What do you have to do with us? You know what? Read that, Samuel. Read Mark chapter 1, verse 24. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Yeah, and did you hear it? He used his human earthly name, Jesus, and he used his heavenly name or title, whatever, Holy One of God, just like this one did. Both of them, they know who he is as soon as he shows up on the scene. And the, the, the earlier one, have you come to destroy us? What did uh, Matthew's version say? Have you come here to torment us before our time, before the time? This is amazing what they know. Now, this whole thing about have you come to torment? Samuel, this is so good. Look at what he says in Mark. I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Okay, isn't that backwards? I mean, this almost seems like an anti-exorcism. Isn't it supposed to be the exorcist who is adjuring the demon by God? I adjure you by God, right? Power of Christ compels you, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? But, but that's not what happened. This demon is adjuring the exorcist by God. It's crazy backwards. It's not supposed to be like that. This demon, I, I don't even know. Is this crafty? Is he, is he in on some sort of power formula and he's trying to get the advantage by saying it first, right? Whatever. Well, and does that like connect to, because I was going to ask a minute ago, because in the Mark version, it says in verse eight, for he, Jesus, was saying to him while he was adjuring, Jesus was saying at that moment, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. So like, I'm not questioning Jesus's power that he wasn't able to do it. But like usually in past miracles, yeah. like Jesus would say something and it would happen. He would touch a person and they would be healed. So why on this occasion did he already say, come out of the man, but then the spirit wasn't coming out? Yeah. And I'm not going to answer your question because it's coming up. Dang it. We're, we're going to delve into that a little bit. So that's a good question. Good question. So before we get there, now this demon, he actually seems a little confused. On, on one hand, he's acting like Jesus shouldn't even be there. He seems surprised. On the other hand, He's acting like he does expect, he has an expectation that Jesus will be his judge and tormentor. And so, in a way, Matthew kind of offers the little clarifying bit that we need. He's asking, why are you here before the time? So, not only do the demons immediately recognize who Jesus is, but they have an expectation within the big story. They expect a time when Jesus will be the source of their judgment and torment. And I don't know about you, it's actually kind of weird that these demons, they're, they're part of what we think of as the spiritual realm, not in creation, although they do operate here. It's weird that they have this relationship with time. Now, think about it. This was how many years ago that the guy said, why are you here? Or, you know, why are you going to torment me before the time? Well, I mean, 2000 years ago. Yeah. 
It's like 2,000 years. So if you were seeing this, hearing this, talking about it way back when it was happening, you might be thinking, yeah, the demon thinks he's there before his time. He's only got 5, 10, 20, 30, 40 years left. No, Jesus was there thousands of years before the time, if you want to think of it that way. Well, and then that makes me ask, does that mean that the demonic, the spiritual enemy, they know about, or they knew about Messiah, son of David, the conquering king and judge, but they did, like, was it actually a strategic surprise on God's part that they didn't expect Messiah, son of Joseph, to be a part of the equation? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. I don't know. They they have some sense of their end. They they know that there's going to be this figure. What all do they know? And what had God successfully hidden from them? And all? I I don't know. It's a crazy picture. But this demon, he did expect Jesus, or maybe you could say a Messiah figure, or whatever you want to call it. Just not yet. He did expect judgment. He did expect torment. Just not yet. So I don't know. I just think that's crazy. Now, kind of back to your question. Jesus was saying, come out of the man, right? So, okay. Did he say it only once? Or was he repeating it? And like you were saying, was this demon offering some sort of resistance that we haven't seen in any of the stories so far? And I think that the answer is, uh, he very may well have been offering a resistance we haven't seen so far, and with good reason. And what we really need to do is read more of the story. Oh, come on. Let's see if we can fit it in, because I can't leave you hanging right there. (laughs) All right. So we go to Mark chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, Luke chapter 8, verses 30 and 31. We're going to read from Mark. It says this, and Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. All right, so catch this, Samuel. The demon knew exactly who Jesus was. But Jesus had to ask for his name? Uh, Maybe Jesus knew his name. He was just asking for the benefit of those around him. I don't know, maybe, but maybe not. I don't don't know. This This is a really crazy story. The way it's written, we just can't really be sure. And then we kind of have to go back to, well, remember, the story that we're selling here on the podcast is Jesus was human. He was walking around as a human. He was self-limiting the God part of him. We're not denying his his divinity in any way, but Jesus is walking around as a human, self-limiting the God part, Uh, yet he was also filled with the Spirit, and he had that Spirit without measure. It seems like this is something Jesus should have been able to know, and yet the way it's written, eh, doesn't. we're not so sure. It's kind of weird. Now, I'm not saying that it is one way or the other. I'm just saying we shouldn't be reflexively jumping to, well, Jesus is God. He knows everything. I don't think that's the way that you should picture Jesus walking around in the first century. I think that's pushing it too far. And And, and let's just say this. If Jesus really didn't know his name and that's why he asked, okay, does this really diminish him as Messiah in any way? He died. He was resurrected. God God has approved and proved this man. We don't care about any of that. That's all. It just, it happened. But it makes the story really interesting. And that fits exactly with the aspect of Jesus showing some type of contention or tension with the enemy itself, especially if in if in the story Jesus had some initial resistance from the demon. Like I don't think that that should diminish, because I know a lot of people will play the OP card, the overpowering card with Jesus because of the God part to say like you know all he had to do was speak or think or just 
exist and everything would have been made right. But I think that it touches more on his humanity and the self-limiting part to say like, oh, it, it showcases the accomplishment of what he did do by showing yeah. that the, the potential power of the enemy in this battle and Jesus having to actually fight uh, yeah. in order to prevail. Yeah, that's exactly right, Samuel. It's exactly right. Listen to what he says. My name is Legion. Okay, first we should probably step back for a second and say, okay, was that really his name? Or was he just given a description of like the group or whatever, right? <laughs> we don't even know that. And when he says Legion, what's he actually really trying to communicate? I mean, let's get technical here for a second. A Roman legion had somewhere between 4,000 and 6,000 men. And I guess technically some horses and things as well. Okay, so this this demon that was talking, was this just a braggadocious way of saying, hey, there's a bunch of us in here? Or was he really suggesting that there were thousands? Gosh. Now, right now, we don't actually know. But we could say this. It would really help us if we could only know just how many pigs were in a large herd. Ah. <laughs> but we're going to have to wait for that, and I already know that's going to be the next episode. But, but the other thing is, check out this. Begged not to send them out of the country. Well, think about what's being asked there. It, it kind of suggests that maybe the demons are, I don't know, a little bit territorial. They, they wanted to stay in a geographic area. That's kind of a weird thought. Now, Luke says it differently. He says, begged him, begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now, uh, and again, what is it that the, that the demons are asking for? It suggests that they kind of know what their ultimate destination is. Well, I shouldn't say ultimate. They definitely will spend a lot of time there during the kingdom. But they don't want to go there either. So you see, it's kind of weird. It's like the demons have a preference for where they want to be, which, which I don't know. That's just kind of a weird thought to me. And I would also add that it almost, that language almost kind of suggests that the demons are parasitic in nature oh yeah it's almost like they know that if they're not attached to a location where people are that they can overcome and possess then they can't exist in the way that brings the type of destruction and chaos that they're known for so yeah yeah um that's another thing that came to mind for me yeah i don't know these are all i mean and i don't know these stories, uh, especially this one about this demonic, these are question raisers. I mean, there are so many questions we could have through here. I'm raising some. I'm sure people have many more than I do. But it, it, it's showing us some really interesting aspects of the bigger picture. And, uh, boy, talk about a cliffhanger. We we are stopping, Samuel. We got to stop yeah. right here. Yeah. You, the listeners should treat this episode like... A good piece of Laffy Taffy, and you should keep chewing on it. That's right. <laughs> and don't pull your teeth out by accident. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, Samuel, let's cut this thing off. We do have to cut it off, but one quick announcement before we let our listeners go. If people have been following along with our sporadic interview series, last Wednesday we released part one of our interview with Dave and Caitlin from Blue Gospel Scripts out of Denver, Colorado. Well, that conversation is not finished. We still have another hour of time with them, and this next Wednesday we're actually going to release the second part of that episode with our conversation with those two great human beings. Yeah. Yeah, and again, uh, we're tacking a song on the end so that it's not just that you got the awesome interview, but you got the bonus. You get to hear some of their music. It's awesome. Okie dokie. Thank you for listening to the Okie Dokie Most Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And be sure to leave us a rating and a review to let us know how this content is impacting your life. You can find out more information about the podcast at www.okiedokimost.com. 
And if you'd like to get a hold of us, please feel free to send an email at okidokimos at gmail.com. And until next time, we hope and pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon. Hold on. (laughs) (coughs) That needs to be a blooper.